and welcome to the November edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, the podcast in which we discuss the future happenings at Metro Cinema in Edmonton, Alberta, and if possible, how that relates to cinema in a broader context. Throughout the show, you'll be hearing a variety of music from Soft Ions, Leonard J. Paul, Matthew Bell of Mangled Tapes, and a variety of guys, Pigeon Breeders, Boosh, and whoever else I can find. And of course, we are now a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. My name is Owen Armstrong, I'm a projectionist at Metro Cinema. I also co-host the Metro Cinema Movie Trivia on the last Sunday of every month at the Tavern on White. To my left... Hi, I'm Heather. I am the Vice President of the Metro Board and the Chair of the Programming Committee. I'm Talisha. I'm a House Manager and the Communications Specialist. I'm Shama. Uh, I teach women's and gender studies at the U of A, and I run a little online magazine called Pyrosins. And you're also curating and I'm also a new curating season at Metro. A series called Working Hard, Hardly Working, and the first screening will be November 21st, Tangerine. And we're going to talk about that yeah. a bit later on. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, so today is going to be a bit looser than normal, and that is because uh, we're showing a film called The Irishman. And that's going to be, we're screening that a lot, actually. And we've also got Rainbow Vision as well. So I've sort of handpicked a few things that we can kind of like just talk around. But, you know, we'll just sort of be uh, spinning off on different tangents as we go. Uh, so let's start off with, uh, let's just start off with Scorsese. Because there is, because of the Irishman, we're showing Goodfellas. We're showing Mean Streets. And although it's not quite yet confirmed, we are... Uh, taxi Driver. Taxi Driver? And, and Hugo. And Hugo. So, uh, yeah, we have, I've spoken already to uh, a, a gentleman called... Paul Keeve, who was the magic consultant on Hugo, and uh, you'll be hearing from him later on. That was a fascinating conversation. But what are your thoughts on on uh, on Scorsese? Is he of particular relevance to you? I feel like I need to. I, it's actually time for me to go back and revisit Scorsese because I think that I definitely have a lot of respect for his filmmaking style, and and even more so for Thelma Schumacher and her editing style. You know, especially when you go back and and look at all of these films that were made, like with hand cut film and just like how yeah I mean she's been working with him for over 50 years yeah um, which is the majority I think he worked she worked on the first film he did which was uh, Don't Come Knocking yeah um, maybe missed a couple but for the, for the most part that has been her career which has been uh, I suppose in some ways that's the the character of his film it's not just his direction the pace of it is entirely kind of dictated by the work that she does as well I felt compelled to watch a few of them when I was studying film, but it wasn't part of any of the film studies courses that I was doing when I was at university. There was no kind of like, you know, impetus to, to go and watch the films of Martin Scorsese, because it was always about watching, uh, most of the time, actually films that informed the way that he makes films. Um, and I'm not sure how much value I really place in them, to be honest. None, none of them are in my top 10 or anything like that. They're not exactly the sort of films that really speak to me. Yeah, like I really enjoyed Goodfellas as yeah. like a fun movie. Um, the like I've seen it several times. Um, I really liked The King of Comedy the last time I watched it, and it's interesting now. It's getting a lot of like people are talking about it again because of its very obvious influence on Joker. Yeah, and so I'm kind of interested to revisit that one as well. I think 
Martin Scorsese is really important for film history and preservation, and he does a lot of like behind-the-scenes stuff on film. So a film I really love um, formally is The Red Shoes, and he was really instrumental in getting that restored. And like if you look at the restoration and what it looked like before, like it's incredible. And he says that I think it's like one of his favorite films. There's also a book by Leslie Stern called the Scorsese connection where he talks about like different um, Scorsese movies and like other movies that relate to it but I don't know I mean I I really like Taxi Driver like I find it difficult to watch but I also think it's one of the best movies about the Vietnam War that doesn't talk about the war yeah um, because it's about masculinity and American imperialism and then kind of like male dominance over women like when he comes back right like what do you do with all of that energy after like killing villagers because the state like sent you there so I think I you know I think that's a really important movie I loved Hugo I haven't I taught it like so many years ago but um I think it also shows that he has this really particular love of cinema that's yeah. like about like the imagination of film the possibility like beautiful possibilities of it um, and that it has to be like meaningful in the way that like a classical painting or something is meaningful and the like the kind of automaton as like a kind of beautiful like universal human figure um, which I don't think is actually like how cinema works no. <laughs> generally but like I think he has his like particular vision about like what film is and Hugo I thought it was like great i mean it's a it's like a thesis statement mm -hmm. for his whole like vision on what yeah i think do. uh not dissimilar to someone like tarantino who very much wears his love of film on his sleeve who's you know he's very, these people are gonna again yeah like tarantino is interesting listening to him talk about film mm -hmm. because it's clear that he has just a very deep love and uh and he's a nerd he's a great big nerd about film and then and hugo is a great example of him kind of like expressing that um but uh, you are right also in that a lot of his films kind of delve into that, you know, male um, oh. fantasy. Raging Bull. Yeah. Mm. Raging Bull I've always forgotten. I've seen it three or four times and I just forget it instantly except for slow motion, black and white boxing like that is. And yeah, it's I don't know what it is. That movie doesn't stick with me. But going back to what you were saying about how he's championed these other films, like I, I, when you were saying it, it just immediately... You know, I was thinking of that noir film Blast of Silence, which I think he brought a lot of attention to, mm. which I think was a big influence on Taxi Driver. And it's got this voiceover narration that's all done in the second person, which is really weird. And then also we did one of the movies that had just kind of totally blew my mind when I saw it, I Am Cuba, which oh, yeah. was a movie that he rescued. And so, yeah, it's interesting because I, I think he's actually had more of an influence on me mm -hmm. through that avenue another film that he uh he championed and uh sought the release for as well was a film called the saragossa manuscript oh, yeah. which is uh directed by uh Wojciech j haas i think is a polish filmmaker he's a polish or czech i think polish um but it's an absolutely brilliant film it's kind of like a story within a story within a story and it's based on this book that's kind of uh it just is like endless hall of mirrors absolutely fantastic mm -hmm. you should definitely see it but that was is him and uh, francis ford coppola is another one as yeah. well who's kind of a keen advocate of uh, you know 35 mil and they're clearly fans of the sort of tangible aspects of film 
When you're done listening to us, why not take yourself to the wellendowedpodcast.com, brought to you by the Edmondson Community Foundation, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink, and produced by Lisa Pruden. The Well Endowed Podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endorsement funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Listen now to the fifth edition of the series It Takes Community, produced by Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal of Nahewin. In the episode, you'll hear from Dave Mauer, former president and CEO of ATB Financial, talking about trusting your instincts, the power of collaboration, and why being able to say, I don't know, is so important. Subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. So yes, in the last week or so, uh, Scorsese also made some uh, disparaging comments about the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the value of them uh, as art, or cinema, I think, was uh, more specific. Um, I know, Shama, you're writing a paper right now on Marvel films. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that sit with you? So I think that it shows that he has this very particular idea of what art is, and there are all kinds of you know aesthetic theories of the autonomy of art that art is something that's separate from like the other spheres of our of our lives and i think that's like pretty debunked by a lot of you know people who who study art um, because of course like art is always ma- like emerging through material conditions and so that's why I'm writing this paper on Marvel movies it's for an American studies journal um, because I'm interested in why they're so popular and how they're this is maybe we can talk a little bit about Joker which I don't think any of us have seen no I've not seen the it conversations but, yeah. around Joker are really interesting um, for the same reasons that I'm writing about Marvel, which is they take these things from our like current historical moment, politics, um, you know, structures of power, and then kind of narrate like an individual's kind of story out of out of them. So like Captain Marvel. So I taught Captain Marvel today, so it's top of mind. Patriarchy is everywhere. It's really everywhere in Captain Marvel. But if you're a plucky young woman you not only can like overcome it but you can be the strongest person of them all and that's the fantasy there or like black panther um so those are the two that i'm i'm writing primarily about coming in you know the a time of like black lives matter and people are talking more about colonialism um, and imperialism and american imperialism and of course the villain is like just reproducing colonialism like he's like the sun will never set on the wakandan empire and so i think it's important to talk about these now are they art i think black panther is really beautiful um i think the art direction is really great in the costumes and everything as like an african-american imaginary but martin scorsese you know he has this really like there's a classic and what does classic mean right mm-hmm. classic means like a very particular kind of like western tradition <laughs> of cinema um and it has to look a certain way. And I don't know, I think he's like maybe an old, like Frankfurt School grump. grump. <laughs> I don't know. No, <laughs> you could be like, right. What would Adorno yeah. say about yeah, Marvel to- movies? Like, that's, what I'm, that's what my article's going to yeah. be about. So I yeah. think it's important not to disregard uh, anything when you're talking about uh, film studies, really. Yeah. Because the, the whole art of it as a, as a kind of like academic study in itself is to be able to, you know, understand the context of why things exist, which I suppose is partly why you're writing what you do. There's a reason those films have been so popular for the last, you know, decade. Mm. 
um, and they're kind of they've defined a genre of their own their, their genre film which is not a strange thing that's that's you know if he's criticizing you know marvel movies because they're all alike then where does that place horror? The idea, I think, of genre cinema is to reveal, you know, a particular aspect of, of you know, the human condition and sort of exacerbate it. And I think that's where things like horror um, succeed. But there must be something within Marvel as well that's, you know, capturing people's kind of imagination. Yeah, I think I like. I, I'll admit that I just kind of skimmed the art of guardian article that kind of i don't think it was even much of an of, article i think it was right. just something he'd said was, yeah and and then it was that was turned into an article right but so i think so he was saying that it's not it's not cinema mm-hmm. and you know i don't think yeah i think maybe it's it's a bad idea to start trying to define what cinema is like it has to fit a certain mold but i will also admit that as someone who doesn't really respond to marvel movies that i uh, connected with like a certain sentiment there that there's like a failure of storytelling on some level and I don't need storytelling to be conventional and, and a lot of times I really like films that are very minimal on story and have like are you know um, put place greater emphasis on like themes or mood or or whatever mm-hmm. um, yeah I mean I think there's definitely like kind of an old curmudgeon um, like energy there and it's, and when you look at Scorsese you, you could you could accuse him of not you know maybe not making high art a lot of the time but he's definitely someone who comes from this like very traditional storytelling um uh kind of philosophy and I think that you I could see where he would be kind of looking at these movies and going like where's the story because that's that's often where I I land with with Marvel movies so yeah I don't really believe in a delineation of high art and yeah. I think that Scorsese really does and like that's that's like a big difference but I would say I do think that the Marvel movies are doing something different in terms of like making certain things about like this moment of crisis like liberal crisis we live in hyper visible mm-hmm. um, and then like containing it within like narratives of individualism um, in a way that like I don't see, so Wonder Woman came out with six months or a year or something before um, Captain, maybe a year before Captain Marvel. And the story of Wonder Woman is like nothing. Like the villain is this abstraction of war. Like there's nothing like like feminist. There's nothing about structural conditions at all in the story itself. And then you have Captain Marvel where like, the ending is like an internet troll being like debate me like come down to my level and debate me so there's all of these kinds of ways that it makes certain things visible I do think the Avengers to me is like a bit different than this than the standalone films which I do think have have good stories but I found like you know Avengers was incredibly disappointing because I I like to think of it as this way like at the end of Black Panther um, they're at the UN and you know somebody from some like European countries like with all due respect, like what does Wakanda have to offer um, the rest of the world? And you can think of it as like, maybe it's this other like epistemology, like another way of like living with each other and living with the land and all of this, like they have indigenous epistemologies to, to export. And so that's like my like fantasy reading. But of course there are different writers, everything for Avengers. And then you have Okoye say to T'Challa um, in the Avengers movie, well, when you said you were opening Wakanda, I thought we were getting a Starbucks. And to me, that's like the perfect encapsulation of like 
a gesture towards like valuing these kinds of like other sort of epistemologies and then like no Starbucks like right. that's just global <laughs> capitalism like that's all it is and of course like the production of these films um, co- they cost so much money they need to make money all over the world which is not the case for like I think Scorsese is now retrenching like maybe on a smaller scale like making this film for Netflix and just distributing it like in well I'm sure that he was paid a lot of money to oh, yeah. uh, to release his film on Netflix sure, yeah. so I'm sure that and Netflix is global too like there are people you know in Canada watching like Korean soap operas and stuff like that which was like never possible really before my interest in it is like why are they so pop- like what are they tapping into and what kind of work are they doing to like contain radical politics? And I think that it's like a bit different than like an Adorno, com- like at least this is the argument I'm making because it is about like really foregrounding those kinds of politics. And people are taking Black Panther, they're taking Captain Marvel, and like Thor Ragnarok is about like colonizers becoming refugees. Like they're taking these stories and poaching from them what they will Mm. um, but they are serving this function I don't know they're for me I'm not going in expecting to come out of them necessarily with a changed world view or that's a fair point uh, like a deeper meaning like they're more they're they're just sort of fun to watch like sometimes you just want an escapist film um, that you don't have to think too hard about that's not to say that you can't take away things from the movies. I think, in their own way, each of them has has takeaway value, um, even intended or not, like as the the main point of them. But that's a strange thing, though, because whenever I watch a Scorsese film, and I have seen pretty much all of them, I, I don't really take anything mm-hmm. away from them. No, it's I, not like I, I I go in expecting to, like I expect to see a film that mm-hmm. I'm. You know, satisfied with. I remember. I think the last one I probably saw in the theater was was Wolf on Wall Street or Wolf right. of Wall Street, mm-hmm. and uh, I was mostly just disgusted by that one. But I mean, that was all yeah. intentional. Yeah. But I very rarely, you know, uh, come out with it feeling like my soul has been purged and I've been told something about humanity. It doesn't really. Right. So I think, like, you know, if I, I want to imagine that. Scorsese is kind of coming from the same perspective I am, which is that I don't need every movie to be like deeply enlightening either. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, Marvel movies don't give me that like escapist entertainment that they do for so many people. Like I mm-hmm. find them, like you said, that you know, if you're not used to that kind of pace and stuff, like I find them abrasive. So I go in yeah. and I go, why does everyone love this so much? And I wanted, I wanted escapist fun and I didn't get it. I got kind of like boredom and discomfort and but like a Scorsese movie although I haven't seen a lot of his more recent films like that's something where I could say yeah it's there's not a lot of the time there's not nothing really deep there but because of the pace of storytelling I get into it it's it's like that's it serves that purpose for me which is like yeah here's a fun time I I haven't seen Hugo yet but it's one that I probably will bring my daughter to when it screens at Metro I I think it's interesting that we ask the question or like make a statement about Marvel movies like this gave, gave or didn't give me meaning but that's not usually the qu- the question that we ask about something like Scorsese I think for the reasons that Heather's mentioning is that there's something about the form that is legible as this is a good film right. mm-hmm. this is a film that you should watch and you should like 
And I think there's all of this kind of fetishization of form where it's like because this is like a serious film, like you have to like it or like eat your vegetables or whatever. I think that Scorsese is like entertaining. And so he hits that sweet spot where people are like, this is a good film. And they're like, this is entertaining. But you can think of all kinds of directors who are like, you should watch this because like it's meaningful and it's like why do we ask that of certain things and not other things but also um with this idea of deeper meaning i i mean i always like think about zizek saying like you know when we when we think we're outside of ideology it's when we're in the deepest and this idea of like ideology erases its own existence like it like disavows itself as such and so like that's my interest in Marvel movies is because people think it's so brainless but I think they're absolutely about like the big questions of our time and they're doing that in a way that like makes people feel good about crisis so like the most recent one was Spider-Man Far From Home which is basically about fake news and it the solution to fake news is Spidey Sense but we don't have that in real life. But we can go watch this film and be like, oh yeah, fake news is a real crisis. But look at how Spider-Man, like, isn't it so cute? And also, like, they're teenagers. And, um, like, I think the stuff about class in that is, like, also appealing in the Spider-Man films because he's just your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He's not a billionaire. In fact, Tony Stark is, like, a villain in the first one in the sense of he like screwed over these workers so they were like okay cool we're stealing your tech i'm like my politics are on the side of the workers right close up is a proud member of the alberta podcast network which hosts a wonderful range of homegrown content from film pop culture and the arts to sports education and politics you can find podcasts of all shapes and sizes at albertapodcastnetwork.com But when you're talking about form, that might be a nice segue to move into uh, your curatorial. Yes. And the first film that you're showing. Um, I'm just going to get... Do you know the date off the top of your head? It's November 21st at 7 p.m. So everyone should come to this. But Tangerine, yeah, it's really beautiful formally because it was shot in an iPhone. Um, it's in a really like naturalistic three uh, on three iPhones. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really naturalistic. But one thing about this, I think there are some films where the form is all there is. And Tangerine is not that kind of a film. So it's no. really... Um, like it's really funny it's telling the story of like street culture of you know trans women of color in LA and just they get to live their lives it's not about you know death or it's not the kind of stories about uh, trans women of color that we see that are meant to make people feel bad so they don't like do anything in their lives or still don't like humanize um, you know people who aren't necessarily like them they're just like oh look at how sad that is and this is not that kind of film and so I think that it's going to be really great for everybody to watch so yeah 7pm on November 21st. The series is co-organized um, it's me and Dr. Beth Capper so she's a friend and colleague and we're both really interested in labor and films so we're like okay we're gonna do something um, that's about (laughs) that's films about labor so tangerine um, 
is going to be our first ones. We have a few other ones in there, kind of from all over the world. So, like, stay tuned for all of that. Um, but I think that, you know, there are ways that, like, labor in cinema is really interesting because, like, cinema is, is an art form that requires a lot of people. So, you know, even just, like, thinking about... Um, old like classic film theory of like the labor of the film itself is erased because all you see is the screen and the screen is like the commodity fetish or whatever but I just think that like labor on screen is, is really interesting because of the space and like temporality of it and stuff. so yeah that's what we're doing we forgot to mention that when we were talking about the incredible number of people that would have put all of that work into making those Marvel films. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <as well>. absolutely. <laughs> it's very, very it's dismissive. To, it's very dismissive to say that uh, to say that it's not cinema when every single person working on those films is probably thinking quite the opposite. Yeah, who saw Tangerine when we had it? Um, it's, it's from uh, 2015, and it's directed by Sean Baker, who then made uh, the Florida Project, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, when was that? Was that, that, was, that was, uh, it was two years ago. Two years 2017, ago? I think. Okay. Yeah. I really like that. And I like the switch to, to using 35mm film at for the that very one. end. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. It, it, the, 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 sorry, the switch from yes. the film to the, the handheld. Yeah. Mostly because they were filming where they. That was, yeah, they they're filming in Disneyland out. in the last scene, which yeah. you're not allowed to but, do. So. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah, like the, the switch <laughs> to that, it, it felt more like you were really in that moment with those people because of the, the format. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty jarring in like a, an effective way for sure. Yeah. That's quite uh, interesting actually that um, I don't know what um, the Florida Project was shot on, but... It was, I think it was 35 millimeter film for the rest of the... For the whole thing. Yeah, really? yeah. Because the transition between, I mean, comparing uh, Tangerine to that, it is incredible what they, he managed to achieve with some iPhones and that translating very directly to 35 mil, mm-hmm. which is a completely different. I mean, I you know I, I'm a photographer. The idea of taking pictures on an iPhone is insulting <laughs> because I'm a snob, and that's how it is. But you know, it's I do both. Really, I've I've just never got into. I do. I mean, I take a lot of pictures on my phone, but I've actually made this uh, not the switch back, but I've kind of started doing more film photography, and I yeah. think using my phone has helped like inform the way that I use film now yeah well and speaking of labor like I think you know the thing about making a movie like Tangerine on your phone is it's kind of this like democratization of the cinematic medium it's like you know I I love the idea that because it is you know the most expensive art form that you can you know Mm -hmm. potentially that you can engage in yeah um to, to say that you can make... I mean, they still invested a lot of money into it. It's not just an iPhone. I think no. they have special attachments and, and stuff to make it work. But still, it is a um, potentially an accessible way to make a film, which um, is, is something that is, we need more of because that's how you get divergent voices making film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that we don't kind of uh, undersell the, um, the level of talent that is involved in every aspect of Tangerine not least the performances uh, from uh, Kitana Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor are absolutely amazing with each other and clearly you need to know how to use an iPhone camera if you're going to make a film on one um, there's a beauty in the kind of accessibility of, our, uh, of, of the medium now that we can all kind of like potentially make a film uh, or be a photographer mm-hmm. but I do like the fact that that doesn't mean everyone's going to be a good one 
So speaking of Maya T Taylor, we would like to, we're going to try to see if we can do this, but um, screen Happy Birthday, Marsha, um, which is a really beautiful short film about Marsha P. Johnson, um, which stars Maya, Maya Taylor as well as Marsha. And it's just the day leading up to the Stonewall riots and um, it's intercut with archival footage and just like a really great little film. So that's something that we're trying to do, but we'll see what happens. But, you know, it's hard to, to get the rights to short films. Yeah, I think <laughs> see what we can yeah. do. But cool. <laughs> this episode of Close Up is brought to you by Unit B Coworking. Unit B is a multi-company co-working space focused on helping people pursue their passions and making Edmonton its creative best. Join a tight-knit group of freelancers, startups, and established organizations all dedicated to getting things done. Besides desks and offices, Unit B offers members access to its podcasting studio and meeting spaces, as well as a kitchen, Wi-Fi, and the usual amenities. It's located in the historic McKenney building on 104th Street, close to everything downtown, including the Bay LRT station. Book a tour today at unitb.ca. It's a rare privilege indeed to be able to welcome my next guest who is a supremely talented and creative individual. He's a professional illusionist whose consulting work for both stage and screen has spanned nearly 40 years and also contributed to changing how magical special effects in productions are approached. His name is Paul Keeve and I met him a few years back when he offered me work as a photographer, videographer and editor in London. But apart from me, he's also worked with a couple of other names including Kenneth Branner, David Blaine, Derren Brown, David Copperfield, Penn and Teller and Kate Bush. Not to mention countless stage productions from Broadway to the West End and the rest of the world in fact as well as working as the magic consultant on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban he's also the only real life magician to perform magic in any of the Harry Potter films and today he's going to talk to me about his work as a consultant and instructor on Martin Scorsese's 2011 film Hugo so right. Paul it is wonderful to speak to you over the sea and across time good to speak to you too <laughs> Um, so tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your involvement in uh, in the Scorsese film Hugo. So I work a lot with directors using magic and illusion in storytelling, and a lot of my work, well, the majority of my work, has been in theatre, and I often get films that come to stage. So I've done the first stage versions of things like. The Witches of Eastwick and Ghost. Well, I guess Matilda was a book first, but a lot of projects that people be familiar with on film that come to stage. And a couple of times I've got to work on a, a big scale film, which is not on stage and it's not based on a previous movie. And I guess the, the best known one was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And my thing, I suppose, is that I was known for working with directors, to try and help directors visualize certain things and Hugo really came about through a friend of mine actually Peter Lane who's the librarian at the Magic Circle in London and it turned out that the props department had been in to the Magic Circle because they thought they could do all the magic themselves now the reason that Hugo is connected to magic is because it's about the life really of Georges Méliès who was the father of film fantasy and the first maker of a of a film that you know that told a story it was that it was the first he was the first sort of non-documentary filmmaker as far as i know um so he didn't just do you know a train coming into the station 
he did A Trip to the Moon, and it was a series of scenes. I think they called it artificially arranged scenes. But he did start off as a magician, and he ran a famous theatre in Paris called the Theatre Robert Houdin in Boulevard d'Italien. And when he was a young man, he came to London to see a famous show that was running uh, called Masculine and Cook. And it was a show in uh, Piccadilly, and it was in a place called the Egyptian Hall, a wonderful old Egyptian uh, kind of museum originally. And Masculine and Cook had this idea of doing their magic in little sketches, in in kind of scene, in, in, in play, playlets, I think they called them. And one of the playlets was called Daffodil, Miss Daffodil Downey's Seance. And it was the story of a seance and it was a spoof comedy, comedy thing. Amelias thought was, this was a terrific idea. So he started to do the magic on the stage at the theater Robert Houdin as stories, as plays. And magicians really were the fathers of popular cinema. I mean, and they, fathers and mothers, I should say. And really what happened was that in the early days of the cinematograph, it was a novelty. It was really taken around the world by magicians who, who would demonstrate these films as what they called animated photographs. Certainly that's how they were displayed at the Egyptian Hall. Oh. And Melies' friend, David Devant, was a, um, he distributed the, not the cinematograph, but the work of a man called Robert Paul, who made a very similar um, apparatus. So Melies acquired all his film equipment from Devant, who was Britain's most famous magician. And he originally started filming his own magic acts. Um, Devant, I think, was the first magician ever to be filmed. So there was this incredible connection between the early cinema and magicians that it's a kind of a bit of a lost history, or was a lost history. And Brian Selznick, a wonderful children's writer, wrote a book called The Invention of Hugo Cabaret, which was half pictures and half words. And if you've never seen it, it's really worth getting hold of that book. Won all kinds of awards for um, children's writing in America. But Scorsese picked up on this book. Now, I have to say, Brian also has a connection to the movie industry because his great uncle is David O. Selznick, yeah. the producer of Gone with the Wind. So I think I think Brian got there on his own ground, you know, because Invention of Hugo Cabaret won all kinds of awards. Mm-hmm. So Scorsese got hold of this wonderful book and decided to make his first, I believe, children's movie or family movie. And because the book is written almost like a storyboard, because Brian told the story half in pictures, half in words, Scorsese really wanted to do it as as a tribute to the origins of cinema. And he did it through this the writing of, of uh, Brian Selznick, who kind of traces the story of Melies through, through this uh, character, Hugo. So I didn't meet Brian on the, um, on the film, and yet I knew of him because I did a children's book called Hocus Pocus that was published over here by Bloomsbury and in America by Scholastic. Around the same time, The Invention of Hugo Cabaret had come out almost, exact, almost the same season, certainly in the UK, and um, which was, I think, 2007. And so I knew of Brian's name and I was fascinated that he had this interest in Melies and magic and he did another book called The Houdini Box. And then I uh, received an email from from Scorsese himself. It was copied to Brian Selznick saying, I want to introduce you two guys uh, because Brian is writing the making of the movie, Hugo, and uh, he wants to interview you. And 
I arranged a phone interview and as Brian has said since, after half an hour it was clear it was more than an interview and in fact we became friends and we've become really good friends uh, ever since, we, we'd stay in contact a lot. And, and as a sort of strange loop back to my other film project, uh, Brian was just commissioned last year to uh, design the 20th anniversary set of um, Harry Potter covers. Oh, right, yeah. And in fact, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen them, it's worth looking up. Um, he did this incredible thing, which was one drawing, uh, a long kind of landscape drawing that was divided into the seven books. So each one is an individual image, but it also connects together into one larger image. And that's I just saw that in the in the uh, in the airport when I was coming back from L.A. last week and I was very excited to see it. But Brian is an incredibly talented writer and um, I got to uh, I got a credit on his his last book because I I, I I was involved a little bit in when he was piecing together the, the, the incredible amount of drawings he does. And, uh, you know, he asked me to, to look through it and see if I understood the story. And his last book is called The Marvels. And Brian Selznick is just, I would just say it's really incredibly worth getting hold of, of his book, of The Invention of Hugo Cabaret, um, in, in addition because it was actually used as the storyboard in the film. And if you, if you have the book in front of you and look at the, uh, uh, and you look at the film, you'll see that the opening of the film <clears throat> and certain sequences are exactly as Brian has drawn them in the book, which is just a really, it's, so it's a very unique film and book relationship in that way. Sandy Powell interestingly co-produced Brian's other book, uh, Wonderstruck, into a film. Uh, so they, they had a long you know friendship and collaboration after Hugo as well. So there oh. lots of things have come from it. So it, Magic was pretty heavy in terms of its involvement in the film. But as sometimes happens, the props department, I think, decided that they were going to do it themselves. Right. Yeah. So they met my friend, Peter Lane, and Peter said, <laughs> Pete, I think they then got into a bit of, you know, they got into a bit of a stick and realized that they couldn't really quite do it themselves. And they asked me to go in and meet the team. And that's how it first came about. And it was, for me, it was a job on a plate because I've always been fascinated by, Mel by Meliers and kind of knew more about Meliers than they did. Yeah. And I got the job. And that's how I started on it. Uh, so the next step was I had to go and meet Marty. Yeah. Marty. And everyone was talking about Marty, Marty. And I thought, I'm never going to call him Marty. And then, of course, you, you do, because that's what everyone calls him. <laughs> so I, I then had to go and meet him at the Dorchester and do what they call a show and tell. So basically show him loads of stuff that I thought might be useful for the film. Mm -hmm. And it was nerve-wracking, to be honest, because I, I think he was about two, two hours late or <laughs> something like that busy man and they had the whole of the set model built in two rooms at the Dorchester and I went up and met him and he was instantly charming so that was the start mostly you know small sleight of hand tricks they wanted you know cards rising and smaller things that Meliers would have been practicing you know with sleight of hand mm -hmm. and I did the demonstration it was a really amazing thing you know to to start on it like that So I know that from um, from personal experience, having seen you work on uh, stage productions and theatre productions, you've had a time frame to play around with things and, and try things that you know different things that might work. Did you have any kind of grander ideas uh, in terms of what you wanted to bring uh, to the screen? Well, there was um, there was one particular opportunity, and that there was a scene which was a flashback, 
and Madame Melies uh, was played by Helen McCrory and, and, and George Melies played by obviously Ben Kingsley <clears throat> and all it said is, in the script was Melies and Madame Melies perform a magic illusion so one of the things Martin Scorsese wanted to know was what should this illusion be and I suppose that's the shot that I had most uh, you know, direct uh, influence on, because Robert Houdin, whose theatre Melies ran, he, he was actually dead by the time that Melies ran it, the most famous magician from France, and in fact Houdini named himself after Houdin, uh, he, he thought it meant like Houdini, and Houdin performed a very famous illusion called the ethereal suspension, where he he levitated his, his son Emile by resting him on a sort of walking stick and his elbow would be rested on the on the walking stick and then Emile was given ether and this was in the 1850s and, and, uh, and they apparently used to actually pour real ether onto hot shovels in the wings so that the audience would smell the ether wow. and ether of course was was lighter than air so it was a pseudo-scientific demonstration that if you gave somebody ether they themselves would become lighter than air and Houdin would lift Emile from his feet until he was horizontal with his just his elbow touching the walking stick and he would uh, it was a, what's called a suspension he was because he was actually in contact with the one point of his elbow and this was done in the 1850s and it was as I say, it was known as the ethereal suspension but Melies revived it in the 1890s and he called it the, in a sketch called the Chateau de Mesmer and I guess this was mesmerism the idea of hypnosis and I think this was the first time that a magician passed their hand in front of someone's face and put them into a hypnotic trance. And again, it was kind of pseudoscience then. It was probably a very innovative thing. Now that's a kind of cliche. And the version that Melies, he didn't perform it himself, but his, his wife was one of the people that levitated, involved a kind of counterbalance. So not only was this walking stick on a stool, but the stool was on a plank that was supported by another two stools. And then the first thing that would happen is that the first stool was taken out. So there was this peculiar counterbalance of the plank. And then Emile would, would uh, well, in fact, it wasn't Emile, it was Madame Melies by that point, would levitate on the, on the second, on the stick. So it was not only this kind of suspension, but it was a weird counter, but impossible counterbalance of the plank that was now resting at the other end on a stool. And I was very fortunate because there was an amazing Taschen book that came out around this time, okay. uh, which is the biggest collection of images of magic. And in the book, they reproduced the original poster of the Chateau de Mesmer, and also, amazingly enough, a black and white photograph of Madame Melies suspended in the air on this levitation. And I knew already that a levitation was the best way to go for the film. Now, the reason that levitation is a great thing to do in a, a movie <laughs> is that if you imagine any, anything involving magic that's like an appearance or a disappearance, so you put someone in a box and then you open it and they've gone, or vice versa, you know, you've got an empty box and somebody appears out of it. If you cut between it, there's no real magic because you don't, you, somebody might have climbed in or you show a scarf empty and there's a dove there. Well, any of those could be done by cuts. And also at a certain point, you've got one of those characters hidden inside a box. And this era was pre any of the kind of sawing a lady in half. There was none of that kind of, if you like, mutilation of the assistant stuff yeah. that happened. So this was absolutely the right thing time period wise. And I had direct references of what it exactly it looked like on the stage of the theater Robert Houdin. And of course, with a levitation, you can cut it in any way and show it in any direction and it looks magical it's a permanent effect of somebody floating and fortunately it was early enough in the process for me to get in with this idea 
and for us to do it absolutely properly and fully and we filmed it in this ab incredibly beautiful theater in paris with you know 200 extras all in beautiful elegant evening dress and we did pretty well recreate the illusion but what was interesting is that scorsese was already cutting to the chase he said we don't need to see the whole effect we don't need to see her stand there we don't need to see her lifted in the air what's what's the key moment of this effect what's the best you know in a way what's the money shot what's the what's the what's the shot that is going to be the best moment and i said well it's the moment where the lady has been lifted horizontally and the magician's hand is just moving away from her feet and she stays in the air and then he passes a hoop around her body that's you know just suspended by one elbow on this pole and that's exactly what we did so i then worked with doug coleman who was the stunt coordinator and the special effects department and we focused on how to get this one moment obviously safely and comfortably for Helen McCrory because these things were not comfortable to do for the real assistants. Um, so we then, you know, we made the rig and we rehearsed it and in, in London and then the whole thing was kind of shipped out. Sandy Powell designed this absolutely incredible dress for it that was based on genuine poster images that I'd sent to Sandy's department. So it was a really magnificent shot. It was just completely thrilling to to be there on the stage. What's fascinating about working on a film like this is is partly is knowing your place because I'm fortunate to be in that position where I, I always thought, well, Martin Scorsese knows 99.9% things that I don't and there's this like 0.01% <laughs> of something that he doesn't know that he wants from me and that's my role yeah. and it's to be there to supply that one thing as well as I can and so on on that afternoon I was one of the key players I was moving from the backstage being on stage and, and showing Sir Ben Kingsley you know the, the passing the hoop over the lady what expression Helen McCrory should have what the movement of the dress should be and then I'd be back with with Martin Scorsese watching the film and he'd say what do you think and um, should we move anything about and let's move that prop to the side at the back because that seems to be uh, confusing so he was directly asking me my opinion and then of course the second the shot is done you're you have to get out of the way really fast <laughs> yeah you are of no purpose and of no use to anybody and don't think you're important just get off the set get out of the way yeah, yeah. and go home you know and that's how it is and it was an amazing amazing process uh, but of course the other the other thing that was also very important to Scorsese as well as Sir Ben Kingsley you do actually have to call him Sir Ben amazingly really? uh, yes yes you do yeah they, they said to me before I met him they were all talking about Sir Ben and I was thinking Sir Ben you surely you don't have to say Sir Ben the minute I met him of course I called him Sir Ben he's very very intense and was in was intent on learning proper sleight of hand so that was another thing like the sleight of hand that you see is real like he does do the rising card yeah and there was there was a very interesting thing he he was determined to learn what's called a one-handed cut you know you cut a pack of cards using one hand and he was i mean i think he would must have been 60 odd when he did the film and it's quite difficult to learn dexterity like that quickly because if you haven't done it all your life <clears throat> you know it's easy as a kid but you know there are certain things that are tricky and he said to me he said no no this is going to be like the the spinning in in uh, in gandhi 
Okay. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I want. I feel like this is central to Melier's character. He would have been doing this, so therefore, I want to learn it. And he put a lot of pressure on himself because he's an incredible artist, very demanding, and very much wants things to be perfect. But he will also be there for other people. Like he was there just in the background at one point to allow Asa Butterfield, who played Hugo, to be able to look at him while he was doing the card trick. And that was just to help Asa doing the acting. So he didn't just go back to his trailer. They could have just put a, somebody, you know, one of the assistant directors sat there. But he said, no, I want to sit there so that Asa is actually looking at me and know, and can act accordingly. So I think these people are sometimes very demanding and, and have a bit of a reputation for being so. But it's because they take their art very seriously. You know, I had to go and visit Sir Ben at his home and work with him for you know, half a day on the site of hand yeah. up in Oxfordshire and, and then lots of times on the set. What is Mr. Paul Keeve doing currently? I know you're working on Mary Poppins, but you always are juggling uh, multiple things. So uh, what's on the horizon? Yeah, as you said, imminently it is Mary Poppins because we're just about to go into what they call tech at the... Um, Prince, of Wa- Prince Edward Theatre in London. Um, it is a, rev- it is a, I would say a revival, as in it's, um, it was first done 15 years ago, and it is basically the same production. But I've come in on it, and the great honour for me is that I am building on the work of the man who I think is the greatest living inventor and designer of illusion, a man called Jim Steinmeier, who did the original production. Uh, he's based in Los Angeles, so it's a great honor and pleasure to me to, to be sort of collaborating with him even though it's mostly remotely mm-hmm. um and um and yes a couple of other projects i've just done a, 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 a well I, earlier in the year i did a play of blithe spirit an old coward comedy um which is uh, often performed r- written apparently in three days by an old coward and uh, that was done in bath earlier in the year and <clears throat> it's just about to open in the west end and it stars Jennifer Saunders, oh, wow. comedian, okay. who uh, people will probably know from Ab Fab, and she plays the iconic role of Madame Arcati, a brilliant, brilliant lady, and and uh, quite, quite, you know, tricky as well. At the same time, the first time I demonstrated the table levitation, when you really want support from your cast to be positive about making it work, she just looked at it and went, "What could possibly go wrong with that?" Uh, uh, and I'm doing, I'm doing a project over in um a vegas thing actually which is which is quite a las vegas thing which is in development but it's always interesting there's always stuff going on uh, matilda continues its run in the west end it's been running for eight years now in the west end and, and it's been touring around the world i'm not absolutely certain it's been to canada yet but probably will make its way over there at some point well paul thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me i know it's uh, we've had to get around uh, you know uh, international time differences and all that sort of thing but uh, i'm i'm very grateful that you took the time to do that and it's amazing to hear about the the experiences of someone working on the set of an actual film well thank you for uh, thank you for your interest and uh, no i'm very honored to be on the film so it's nice to relive some of the memories i look forward to to speaking to you again soon Talisha, what about this? Uh, what about this Hustlers film that was confirmed today? Yeah, it's a gateway to cinema. Yeah, gateway, it's a gateway to, to cinema. cinema. Where is it? I've, I, I, for a minute, I thought you meant American Hustle. That is not 
it's no, like a it's a movie, right? Yeah, is it the Jello? It's a brand new movie. Um, these women working at a strip club. Uh, I don't remember the exact plot, but they're decide, decide that they're gonna yeah just essentially shake down rich men for all their money. It's got <laughs> Lizzo in it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, it's got it's got uh, Constant, Cardi B, Cardi, Cardi B, Constance Wu, Jennifer Lopez. This is a new film. Yeah, just brand came new. out like a couple months ago. All right. When is it showing? Uh, it is showing on Tuesday the 19th uh, for Gateway to Cinema, and it's at 9.30. you putting that in the diary? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, anyone listening should also do that. Yes. Yeah, it's it's based on a true story. So, like, some of the characters are, are um, modeled on real-life people. Okay. And there's actually this whole thing. Uh, the, I guess one of the... the things going on right now is the woman who JLo's character is uh, kind of based on is suing the movie for using her story like they they offered her um, to be in the film but right. the amount of money they offered I believe her exact quote was she owns bags that are worth more than what they <laughs> offered to pay her so she's grifting them now brilliant <laughs> that's amazing too. So, i mean that's one of the things and then there's kind of a debate um about like whether or not this is a good portrayal of sex workers sex worker well yeah both in the way like yeah okay so the the strippers are portrayed you know more as human beings i suppose rather than just objects but at the same time it still kind of uses the same tropes in strip clubs where like people who have sex for money mm-hmm. versus just stripping for money they're like the lowest right. on the, and they're still um disparaged yeah uh so i mean that's a thing and also production shut down an actual strip club for about a week to do it and the the, the workers there like they were allowed to or they were offered you know if they wanted to audition for roles to be in the background and stuff and they were given pay but people who weren't were just out of work for a week and like when you work in a strip club it's like you make pretty decent money like it could be that week could be your rent check yeah um and they were never people who didn't get background roles weren't compensated The following day, and this is the second one of the new season called Bring on the Extraterrestrials. Uh, uh, Sorry, October was Aliens. That's right, yeah. So the second in that curatorial is Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, which is uh, adapted from uh, the novel of the same name by Michael Faber. The film's from 2013. I remember when you showed this, I was working at a very, a a cinema that's very similar to the one uh, that we work at now at Metro. It was the Rio in Dalston in London, one of my favourite cinemas amazing place still shows 35 mil but under the skin i did not want that film to end when i first saw it i've probably saw it about another 10 times after that i don't think it's entirely unfair to say that it is perhaps a lot of style over substance but going back to what we were saying earlier about you know how we kind of enjoy different forms and uh, the way that you know the sort of narrative and language of cinema speaks to us in different ways i'm a big fan of atmosphere and I like to be given the space to think. So I think it's it's not necessarily... I like to be, uh, you know, dictated the sort of thoughts and motivations of a particular character or their context even really explained to any great extent. But Under the Skin was a world that I could live in very easily for a very, very long time. Um, who else managed to see that one? I know you did yes, not, no. Yeah. yeah, I saw it. I... What from what I remember of it, uh, it looks cool and the music was really cool. Yes. <laughs> uh, so that that's sort of what I remember. 
But I guess uh, it also just seemed kind of like a movie that men who are afraid of women would make. No, no, that. But again, that, that's. I mean, I'm. I'm not. Uh, confessing that I'm afraid of women but I, I, I find it fascinating that films like that are made in the same way that I think it's important to you know address films like you know the, those within the Marvel universe sometimes their fallibilities are the most fascinating things about them it did look beautiful and it sounded beautiful um, it's about sorry I haven't mentioned anything about it at all Scarlett Johansson is a sort of uh, otherly figure an alien uh, although that's never really made completely explicit um, and she sort of wanders around in Scotland uh, in Glasgow, I think, uh, preying on young men who are all played by non-actors, by the way. Who uh, every every scene of the men coming into the uh, the van where she kind of like lures them in uh, were told only after they finished the the scene that they were in um, that they were in a film. <laughs> so the every reaction is kind of very uh, is very immediate and very it feels that way you're not it's like ever quite camera yes exactly how is how ethical is that um i'm not sure that any of it is ethical um but <laughs> they it's did very... don't sign releases yes yeah. uh, afterwards yeah. after yeah. they were asked to sign the releases so if they didn't um then uh then i guess no that bit, that bit that they were killed they by scarlett johansson <laughs> that's great um and they're sort of uh, they're taken to this place uh, uh um, it's this kind of strange uh, otherworldly place where they are kind of absorbed it doesn't really have much in the way of a script but again i just like the uh, the opportunity to be given uh, to sit and kind of like enjoy this weird void for a couple of hours. So I think that this film might be interesting like within the context of the series because it's someone who's looking at um, different uh, representations of aliens in films. Mm -hmm. And so being someone who's, you know, re-watching Star Trek The Next Generation right now, I have to constantly turn off my critical brain where it's like, <laughs> why do so many aliens look so much like humans? And There's have an episode about that. I know. I mean, they, they do try to explain it sometimes or how, like, how come they can, like, even have children together? It's like, you know, I, you just have to stop thinking about it. But it is interesting to, you know, to think about, like, you know, even though this film doesn't clearly articulate that she is... A alien species just you know to think about how this is a very different way of thinking about how a how an alien yeah. might like interact with a human population and who would an alien embody yeah exactly yes. like how would a you white woman who looks like scarlett Johansson. exactly yeah and that is what will give her the most access to preying on people yeah but I think that this is a good movie for Metro to screen precisely because it looks good and it sounds good. So if you're going to see it, you should see it on a big screen, oh, yeah. a big sound system and all of that. And it is like it is like an MRA fever dream, which is also <laughs> like a good thing to watch to know like how that operates. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Irishman. Irishman. It's Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. yeah. It's isn't it a cab driver who's also working for the mob or something? The Irishman is just. Oh, I, you know, I was just writing it up on something today. It's some guy like recounting his life working for the mob and also his role in his friend's disappearance. The mystery. The mis The yeah. 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 The disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Um, I read an article. I always reference film comment because I read it a lot. Um, but I read an article with the. Um, cinematographer of the film and he was talking about how they because the film kind of spans from the 
50s to the 70s, how he tried to, even though it's digital, tried to emulate kind of the different film, popular film stocks from the different times. So like the 50s is like this very Kodachrome looking aesthetic and then it goes to like Ektachrome, I think. And then the third, the the process, and I can't remember what it was that was they were doing in the 70s, but it has this very like desaturated but contrasty kind of look. Oh, like the bleach bypass. Yeah, and, yeah. He, was, and he was also looking for at um, a lot of, he was looking at still photography as an inspiration and specifically the the photographer Gary Winogrand. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, it's kind of like interesting to look at knowing that 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 was the the thought process behind it and how they wanted to not make the violence sensational but to make it a just like him doing his job in this very like work a day detached kind of way so you know it maybe if if that is actually accomplished then i think that is a bit of a shift for scorsese who just like can't help but make violence um, romantic and cinematic. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to um, recommend, although I haven't seen it yet, that people come to the final um, night of Rainbow Visions, the Rainbow Visions Festival for the film The 20th Century. Um, I am actually going to see it at the Festival du Nouveau Cinema in um, Montreal this weekend. Um, but this is a film directed by Matthew Rankin, who is originally from Winnipeg. Um, and I believe the film was made all in Montreal. Um, he was our artist in residence at FAVA, where I work, the Film and Video Arts Society. Um, back in 2014 and he is a very unique um voice in canadian cinema this is his first feature although he's made some really great shorts before this um it won the best feature first feature by a canadian filmmaker at tiff a few weeks back and uh it's a uh very stylized like built sets 35 millimeter film um that's kind of a fictionalized history of William Lyon Mackenzie King based on his journals where there is all these references to some kind of sexual shame that he has and there's pages ripped out and and uh, Matthew Rankin has taken his own spin on this and it's like there's like butter churning contests and weird stuff and uh, <laughs> my former co-worker and friend Trevor is, is acting in it and it's going to be screening with his short docking as well so yeah yeah, it's going to be a really fun night and, and, and Matthew and and Trevor and uh, they'll be in attendance as well so if you don't know what docking is uh, you can google that yeah, yeah. and uh, find I'm out. friends with Matthew from Montreal <laughs> oh yeah exactly. yeah, he's, yeah he's a one of a kind person so. oh, amazing okay yeah. so that's the final night of uh, Rainbow Vision, you said so. That's uh, that is November tenth, Sunday the tenth. Yes, yeah, at seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, definitely don't miss the short film before it. It's hilarious. Yeah. Is Trevor going to be there? And yes, he'll be there, and it's it's to be seen on the big screen. Yes, for sure. <laughs> it really yeah. is. <laughs> so seven o'clock. Yeah, yeah. seven yeah. o'clock. Anything else we missed? Go to uh, go to metrocinema.org and find out more details. Uh, Heather, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Talisha. Thanks. Thanks. Shama. We'll see you in the lobby.